world-class media, this is World Class. I'm your host, Travis Chappell. Here on World Class, we combine value, entertainment, and behind-the-scenes insights to bring you the most comprehensive view of what it takes to become world-class in what you do. Listen in every week as I have conversations with top business leaders, journalists, hostage negotiators, authors, comedians, producers, you name it. If they're the best at what they do, I'll have a chat with them. I believe that the best way to become world-class is to learn from those who already are. And that's exactly what we do here on the show. You'll learn the skills that you need to master, the mindset that you need to adopt, the work you need to put in, all from people who have walked the road before you. So get ready to learn, be motivated, and most importantly, have a good time because you're listening to World Class. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am super stoked to be out in the LA area interviewing the legend of all things pitching, Mr. Brant Pinvidic. That's What's the legend of all things pitching. Yeah, that's that, you. that just sums it right up right <laughs> yeah. there. So. Yeah, so I guess we can take <laughs> off, huh? That's it. <laughs> that's Done. It. And thank you. So, <laughs> um, Listen, man, I mean, there's so many things that we could go into. I feel like I'm catching myself saying that a lot more recently with the people that I'm talking to, but yeah. uh, there's just so many intriguing parts of the story. But always, always, always like to go back and put a little bit of context for everybody that may not know who you actually are and what you've done. Yeah, like most um, people. Yeah, uh, I find it I find it super fascinating to have the background that you have coming up in just like middle of nowhere Canada type yep. of thing, and then now being so involved in the Hollywood scene and everything else that you've been able to do in your career. So let's start back there. Talk to me, like let's go way back here. Talk to me about like middle school Brant. Like what was on your mind at that point? You know, middle school Brant was really mature in some ways intellectually, but really immature in all the other ways that count. So I had a really hard time sort of matching the verbal skills I had and the ability and my big thought process with actual maturity. So it really, it was rough. And I always pictured doing big things. I wanted to be an American since I was probably eight years old. Oh, really? That was always my goal to be an American. For a particular reason? Or? Um, There was just something about the celebratory nature of the country and the way that they, like... America loves heroes. They love people to do well. Mm. Canada is a little bit less of like that. It's a very reserved culture in that way. And I always had an issue with that. There was one time really early where we had a sprinter named Ben Johnson who had won the 100 meter and the fastest man in the world. It was the greatest thing ever. Yeah. And I remember that his rival was on, I think it was either Johnny Carson or Jay Leno or somebody at the time. And they were saying, hey, listen, um, Carl, you know, because you run the 200 meter, actually, after you get up to full speed, you're actually running faster than Ben Johnson ever runs because in the 200 and everybody starts cheering and it was this whole thing. And I was thinking to myself, the hundred meter has always been traditionally the fastest man in the world, Yeah. but the Americans love their people so much. And they're like, Hey man, they just, we'll just made it up. Yeah. yeah. And it was just like, <laughs> most people would be like, yeah. And I was like, yes, that's what I want. And then I saw a movie called varsity blues. Mm. And I was like, where are the cheerleaders in whipped cream bikinis for me? Like, we didn't have cheerleaders at my school. We don't have football. Yeah. It just, there was something about the way yeah. American culture appealed to me. And I always thought I would be here. I just didn't know how to get here. Yeah. yeah. And so I batted my head against the wall for years So school, as an entrepreneur. Did, yeah. Was school something that was a positive or negative experience for you? Neutral? No, school was pretty neutral. It was pretty okay. easy. Um, I had a pretty easy time with the sort of course load and stuff, okay, okay. but I didn't really put a lot of value in it. It was more like I just did it because it came natural and I did whatever I, the minimum I needed to do to get by. Yeah. But 
it was the entrepreneurial side that came and I, and I do a big keynote on this where I talk about it. Like, you know, being an entrepreneur when I was a kid was because you had no other marketable skills and you couldn't hold a job. You had to go be an entrepreneur, right? There was mm. no Gary Vaynerchuk making it cool. Right. Right. So <laughs> that was, I did, I just didn't well, do not, it not well. even just not cool, but probably in a lot of cultures and family situations, probably not even acceptable. Yeah. It was right? just like, like, whatever. Yeah. And, and that was fine. I just couldn't make anything work. If I had made a business work, yeah. then that would have been great. But I couldn't make anything work. I could get it started. I could come up with big ideas and envision it, get people excited, raise money. But the operation of a business, I was mm. terrible at. So, and and when you're talking about these businesses, is this high school, college? like oh, Yeah, starting in high school, I started my okay. own businesses. I was running teen dances. I had a website company. I mean, I just, I did lots of stuff. Gotcha. I owned bars. I owned nightclubs, pool just halls. Always had the itch then. Always. Always. And it was just sort of like I'd get a big idea and I would just chase it down, you know? Do you view that and more that was, as genetics or? Um, I think it's more vision. Like I had vision for what it could be hmm. and potential and I really saw it clearly. Yeah. And I had a pretty good ability to make other people see it. I just was, I had a real problem with execution. That hmm. was more my issue. And I just always believed in this delusional optimism that, I was going to be able to make this one work. Yeah. So, I and mean, when it failed, it was just like, oh, I had six other things to blame. And it's like, I'm off to the next one. Off to the next one. So, that's the, yeah. that's, I, I think that's a huge point right there is what you're talking about is that um, I think for people like you who see a certain level of success in life, it's just kind of a belief system that you have where it's not a if. I'm successful. It's just a, until I'm successful. Like yeah. one of these, like, Hey, this one didn't work out and this one didn't work out and I failed again, but we're going to get back on the horse. And like, it's just gonna, it's yeah. going to happen. There, there's but no, and if, your definition right? of success is always different to other sure, people. Right. Sure. I never grew up believing that I was going to be a multimillionaire. Hmm. I just wanted to find a, like a way to pay the bills and do it consistently. I remember when I was, what would have been 18 and I had my own pool hall and I was just thinking if I could just make $2,000 a month, consistently mm. like I could live the rest of my life like that that's right. all I need and that was sort of my vision of it'd be nice if things went really well but like that's really was my goal for a while because the failures to put that together yeah sort of got me to the point where it's like I just need something to cling to right just need a modicum of success you know right so from 18 owning a pool hall up in Canada what's next after that? Did you end up going to college out there? I know you, you were in Victoria. Right? Yeah, Victoria. Victoria. So, you know, and listen, Canada going away to college, that whole thing is not a real Canadian culture. Like we don't travel to go to college. Most mm. people. So you go, went to the university to the of Victoria, right. you, you know, you take classes. It's not a, it's not the same experience in our fraternities. Like, right, right. It wasn't like that. But for me, it was, you know, what was the next business? When a new opportunity came, I was jumping into that. Gotcha. And so, I started um, a big restaurant nightclub in the middle of Canada in Regina, Saskatchewan. And that, again, didn't work. But what had happened was, is there was, on Sunday nights, we would do, and Sunday during the day, actually, we would do these NFL games, and okay. people would come watch the game, and then they'd bugger off out of the bar right away. And I was like, ah, I gotta come up with a way to keep them in the bar. Right. So I'd come up with these weird, wacky games that we would play after the game at halftime and whatnot, and it kept people in the bar. So when I lost the bar, moved back home, had nothing to do, I was sort you know, I had this idea that this would be a great TV show, right? Mm. And I tried a radio show with my friends at his nightclub and we were doing it live on the internet. The internet went down and so it turned into this sort of live show at this nightclub. And yeah. I was like, hey, we know we used to play all these games. We should do that. And people were going crazy. I was like, we're gonna make this a TV show. So I had heard the word pilot before. I knew what a sort of pilot was. Yeah. So I just told everybody, hey, I'm making a pilot for a big network. 
nobody really asked a lot of questions because yeah. nobody knew anything about TV okay. back then. <laughs> and I did one in Victoria in this little town and had a bunch of people come film it at this nice club. And it sort of worked. Like it was cool, but I couldn't sell it. Nobody was interested in even taking meetings. So I thought, okay, well, I'll just go do more of them. Then you have to buy it because I have one at every city. Yeah. So I went and toured across the country with my own money, raising money, trying to get sponsors, almost had the whole thing covered. Did 11 cities across Canada, came back, couldn't sell it. <laughs> Damn it. So I figured, well, it's because when we went in the 11 cities, we were promising a big prize at the end, but I never really delivered the prize. It's almost like the finale wasn't done. Oh, so I raise money, go do a whole thing, go down to Cancun, take all the winners, film this thing. Yeah. Come back. Can't sell it. <laughs> nope. Everybody's just, I can't understand it. And then one TV executive, I wish I could remember her name because I'd love to put her on blast, but she was at one of the big channels in Canada and she said, listen, what are you doing? Like, I would never buy this crap. First of all, I could buy Friends for $50,000 an episode. Why would I buy this thing? Okay. And I was like, it's can Canadian content. It can't, she's like, you're so dumb. It doesn't qualify as Canadian content. You filmed it outside of Canada. You're not a woman with, like, you don't get enough points, right? There's yeah, points. Right, right. This thing is worthless. You're never going to sell it. And I was just like, oh my God. And part of what she was saying was 100% true. It wasn't Canadian content. But. So this is like early 20s that you're doing this. Yeah, right? I'm. Yeah, I'm like 24 years old. Okay, so I know there's more to this story, but yeah. just before we get into that, yeah. um, why, like, what possessed you to think, like, all these people are wrong, I'm going to keep doing this? Like, every time you would go out and do something, right? So you, you set up, so you're like, okay, we're going to tour the country. You go yeah. do that, you come back, nobody buys it. Okay, well, we just messed this one thing up. Because these are all just hunches, right? Like, you don't, oh, you're not getting this advice from some, like, big Hollywood on executive. And, and just absolute. <laughs> just a big hunch, and then, like, I'm going to go raise money, let's go to Cancun, let's film this. It's, then, more, than, yeah. it's more than, it's an arrogant <laughs> lack of knowledge that makes you think you know what you're doing. Yeah. Would and you say that was beneficial or? It depends. And yeah. I, when I, when I speak on stage, I talk about this. Is my story a cautionary tale or an inspirational journey? Mm. It's a little of both, but you don't want to follow my roadmap. Mm. So, but what happened was, is every time somebody wouldn't do something, I just figured they didn't understand it properly. Gotcha. They couldn't see all the details. If I could make them see it, they'd understand it. They'd be interested. Yeah. And, but because of the Canadian system, I wasn't getting the right meetings. I wasn't. So I just figured I needed more than it. Then it would be undeniable and they would have to accept it. And yeah. I could build, and I could see the business, sponsorships and, and you know, uh, beer companies. I, I could see it, just couldn't quite put it all together. And I figured that it was just a little bit of, you know, pieces that I need to find and, and illustrate, right? But I had finally got a producer in Canada, in Canada, in Vancouver, to reach out and connect me to a producer friend in Los Angeles who was like five degrees from a real producer. And I just begged, <laughs> Could, would you please take a look at this? And she was like, listen, just send it to me. And I was like, my whole life's in this. I'm living in my parents' basement. My two-year-old child, like I'm flying down. Will you please just take a meeting? And she's like, fine, come down. So I, you know, I took the meeting. I showed her all the stuff. Now at the time in television, nobody was going out to make teaser tapes and make, you know, example reels of their shows you were walking with a napkin saying hey i want to take 16 girls and have them compete for one eligible bachelor oh, okay let's try eight episodes right <laughs> so when people saw that they kind of freaked out and i got this sort of a, this legendary reputation around town who's this canadian kid running around this amazing project and i sold it to nbc i got job offers and i moved to the united states like 30 days later wow and that was the end of my canadian life right there what was that show it was called the ultimate party quest 
and NBC bought it. We never made it, which was the crazy. After all of this, right, we right. never made it. But it changed the perception of what I could do because I moved here and my agent, Sean Perry, who is still my agent 18 years later, wow. said to me, listen, that pitch that you did was so impressive. Everybody's talking about it. From now on, every pitch that we take out, you have to do it at that level because that's, that could be your reputation. That could be your calling card. Wow. You have to do that. So I did. And it worked exactly like that. And I remember when... I early, like six months later, I had sold a show at pilot to CMT and we were in Vegas doing a focus group. And the guy running the focus group comes out from behind the glass and me and the network president sitting right there. And he says, Hey, uh, do you guys want to do the slide or the dial test for real time interactions? And the president of the network stopped and turned to me and said, uh, Brent, I don't know. You've done this more than I have. What do you want to do? <laughs> and I was like, Oh yeah, I love the slide. Let's just do that. You know, but what had happened was, is everybody was getting their job in reality TV at that time. It was just kind of a new genre. Hmm. And so they just assumed I was one of them. Nobody asked questions. Yeah. They just knew I had a crazy hot project and the pitches that I were making were at super top level. And so they just assumed I was one of them. Yeah. And then they, you know, then they dig the moat, pull the drawbridge up and now it's impossible. Then it started being possible to get in. But I just sort of fit into that. And I remember specifically driving down the 405 with my convertible Sebring. You know, my wife and I, we, like, she never made more. Than, we lived on her salary because I kept losing money everywhere in Canada. She never made more than like 50, no, 40 some odd thousand, $42,000, right? Yeah. My first contract in the US in Los Angeles was $110,000. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to be a year contract. They're going to figure out I'm a fraud and they're going to send me back home. But like, this is going to be the greatest year ever. And I was driving in this convertible Sebring, yeah. I had a Blackberry that the company was paying for and I'm sending Christmas notes. Hey, can't wait to see you after the break. Hey, Merry Christmas, man. What a great year. Great meeting you. And I realized in seven months in the United States, I had more people that I cared about, interacted with, that mm -hmm. cared about me, that supported me than I did in 30 years growing up in Canada. Wow. And it's like, this is my home yeah. and these are my people. And so when I coach CEOs, when I coach kids or college kids, I say the same thing. Like, you have to find your people yeah. and wherever that is. And the time you're putting in now, where if it's a struggle or you're grinding it out, like that's preparing you for when you find your people and your place and it will all come together. It's not a waste of time now. It's like going to the gym. Hmm. You put in the exercise yeah. now, you're going to see results at some point later, but you, you got to be willing to put in the efforts. And that's what I did in Canada. I did that for you know almost 30 years. And then all of a sudden, then, then all the skills that I had developed were valuable in this one spot. Yeah, so obviously relationship building was pretty key to a lot of those different things. Like even just sprinkled throughout your story. Like, crucial. Well, yeah, you know, this no, this one crucial. producer put me in touch with this other, yeah. you know, producer who put me in touch with this producer. That's then right. I got in this room. How how much has that affected, um, you know, your success, especially in an industry that's just insanely competitive? It, it's the core of my success is built on my abilities to create relationships. There mm -hmm. is no other version. Yes, I pitch incredibly well and I created some really great shows. That helps. Yeah. But the next level is because I spent the time and the effort to make those relationships. Now, for me, there was two big pieces. It was one, it was the first time I was around people that were that level of success, that level of con content and willing to support you. And the Canadian system is a little bit more mm -hmm. like... I don't want you to succeed. 
if yeah. I can't succeed. Whereas the U.S. system, particularly in entertainment, is like, let's all rock and roll. Right. The more successful you yeah. are, the more successful I am. So I found everybody that I met and made a connection with, like, I really enjoyed. And I liked those people, and they liked me. And that was a feeling I just didn't have hmm. in Canada. I never felt liked or supported. Hmm. I felt more tolerated yeah. sometimes. Yeah, and that just was tough for me. Just like almost always on the outside. Yeah, and people are like, like, you're such an idiot. Like, right. what a dumbass like, you are. Like, what are you work. doing? Yeah, right. yeah, like, oh, like that's the feeling I got. And in, in here in Los Angeles, in LA, it was totally different. So I loved connecting with people because it was something that I would get uh, the vibe back right away. Yeah. And that's super exciting. But also I realized that it could... I could bring value to people. So I, and listen, I don't tell a lot of people this, but, I, and this was, you wouldn't know this because mm -hmm. it feels natural. You watch me with people, you think it's just natural, but no. Like I had a spreadsheet of every single person I ever met in Los Angeles, when I met them, what we talked about, when I was going to see them next. And I made sure I connected with every single person in a three month window. Mm -hmm. There isn't a person in town that I've ever known that doesn't hear from me every three months. Wow. End of story. I know when their deal's up. I know when they get a new job. I know when they're coming to the end of a job because that's when people are in their most vulnerable. And I would call people and say, hey, isn't your deal coming up? Yeah. And it's like, oh man. So I've been hearing lots of good things about you around town. You want me to put a word in for you anywhere? Yeah. And it's like that is, you know, bringing value to someone. It's ingratiating yourself to somebody. It just says like, hey, you're important. I send emails every day, 10, every single day. Hey man, thinking about you. Because I am. I think about right. people. Who in right. my life do I dig? Who do I like? Who yeah. do I remember? And somebody will pop in their head and I can go write that email. Hey, thinking about you. I will write an actual goddamn physical letter. Wait, what? When was the last time you <laughs> did that? When was the last time you got one of those? Yeah. Imagine you right. open up a, in your mailbox and there's a letter and it's a card with Brant Pinvidic's logo on the bottom. It says, hey, Jeff, I was just thinking about you, man. Really liked our interview. Wanted to hope you're doing well. Yeah. You're like, what the hell? <laughs> right? Because I take that time. Right. Because... I get off on knowing how much people appreciate that. And like, I, I joke on the stage all the time. I am one chromosome from being a caveman, right? <laughs> it is not hard to get on my good books. You just got to make me feel good. Like all I want to do is, is feel awesome. So yeah. when people tell me I'm great, when people tell me they appreciate me, it's like, I just fill up. Yeah, right. Simple, simple stuff. And I find if I'm nice to people and make an effort to do well by them, they love that. Hmm. And they give me what I want, which is appreciation. Yeah. And so I'm out sniffing around like a rabid dog looking for appreciation. And that's what those connections do for you. I mean, that's so much of what we teach here on the show is exactly what you just said. That last like three minute segment yeah. is going to make a great clip, Eric. Yeah. Um, but uh, but it is. And, and I find the same exact thing. Anytime I, I write a handwritten thank you or something like that to somebody yeah. – it, there's no financial things. You don't have to buy them something. You just send them, hey, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate yeah. your and time. You, but you got to know who to send that to. Yeah, here's the, the thing. particular person. Yeah, like if you if you meet me and we're not peers Yeah. and you send that to me, it's like I know you're trying to get to be my friend because I'm at a certain level and you're mm. new. Like that happens, mm. okay? You got to know who and where your peer level is. And I was in on a conference just the other day and, I, and there's a guy talking about how to make connections and how to reach out to people on in LinkedIn and tell them that you, you know, what you can do for them, find value for them. And it's like, I get that two years ago. Yeah. That might've worked, but now it's like everybody who sends me an email or reaches out blindly on LinkedIn or, or Twitter or whatever is trying to provide value for me. Yeah. Well, it's like, guess what? You can't, right? Yeah. And it's not fair to everybody think that you got it. You can't provide value to me. Yeah. Some people can. And the people who can provide value to me aren't reaching out. They just do it. 
they they're they're beyond what I'm doing. They right. want you know like that's the world. You want to hang out in the crowd with the at the party with sure. the people who don't want you there. Sure, that's the way our lives are. You got to accept that. So when you find peers, that's who you reach out to. When it's not your peer, it's okay to reach out to somebody on LinkedIn and say, hey, listen. I'm a big fan. I think what you do is great. I'm just starting out. I could really use some advice. I can't do anything for you. Yeah. I can't bring value to your life. But if you'd be willing to help me out a little bit, you know, any advice would be great. That will make more of an impression with me than anybody who sends me like, I can do this for you. I can mm. do that for you. Yeah. Let's work together. Let's cross over. Like I'm just, the world is very cynical. So you got to be careful with that. And so the gestures that you do in the efforts to make connections you got to be really careful because people will sense that and you got to yeah. know where you sit in the peer level, you know? Got it. And you're always going to be quote unquote faking it up one level. Mm -hmm. I still do it today. Yeah. You yeah. know, the people on the, in my world that I'm friends with, it's like, I'm, I've reached to get up to that level. Right, now right. they're doing the same thing. And to your credit, like yeah. to put yourself in those positions to be able to capitalize right. on like what, what you're saying earlier about yeah. finding yourself in that room where yeah. this guy was, was asking you for advice on something and you're just kind of like, oh, um, you know, yeah. here is the answer. Well, and I, you know? I have this, when I talk about social media and I do a sort of a seminar on that kind of stuff, but I, my first slide in the seminar is, I am not as rich and famous as you think I am. <laughs> That's just a fact. And nobody really is, yeah. okay? Nobody actually is, and that's just the way our lives are. Right. And I'm not as important. I don't wield as much power as people think. It's just not the way we're, and nobody really does. That's right. the funny thing. Right. So you got to kind of accept that in your world mm. and and be okay with that. And yeah, you know what? Online, you, you play imagery, you play perception. And I talk a lot about creating perception, which is great. You want to create perception, mm. but perception and work go hand in hand. That's the secret to success, yeah. not just perception. Because there are a lot of people online on Instagram right now, Instagram entrepreneurs, and all they do is perception. Mm -hmm. There's no business there. Right. Which, Making content for people who can't afford to hire you exactly. is not a business. Exactly. So that's what I was going to say is the people who are real sniff those people out in a second. In a second. Yeah. And, and like, they're, they're your only, yes. you're, only, you're only convincing the people who can't even afford to pay you for anything. That's right. And right, those yeah. people get smaller and smaller because they've already fallen for clickbait a few yeah, times. They've right. already been through a funnel once, once or twice. Yep. So now there's less Turn of them burn. out there. Yep. And everybody's chasing those people to the bottom, which is just crazy. Right. It's like what we used to do in the nightclub game. You know, you'd open a new nightclub, the cool people would show up, you'd, you'd turn around and turn away all these other people. Then the cool people are like looking for the next thing. So then you have to let in a few of the B-level people. And then that shows people that, oh, I don't want to be there anymore. And then those yeah. people leave. Next thing you know, you're chasing around anybody who'll come into your club, right? And that's sort of what that on, the online entrepreneur is. Where yeah. And, you know, two things. One, the book did really well. So that helps. I get to meet everybody. That, you know, it's with Random House. So a big publisher can put you in the room with anybody, which sure. is kind of cool. So I get to meet everybody. But also I did this for a living. Like I, 20 years almost, I ran a, you know major television productions in a big high level. So yeah. I know talent. I know perception of talent. I know what the public thinks, what the public wants. I know your Q scores. I know what you say your influence is, but what your real influence is. I needed sure. to trade on real influence. So I can see through all this crap. And this the number of people who are in phony pretend mode it's so scary and so crazy. Yeah. And there's very few people because the people who are actually making a business are not going online to give you a free ebook. Yeah. It's just right. those people don't do that. 
Right. It's like, I, I might give you some free content or whatever, but like, I don't need anything from you. Right. If you need to pay 1995 to get into my email list, you can't benefit from the information I have hmm. like consistently from that. You need, you need to grow more. You need to yeah. build more. Like I, it's just a weird thing that we've gotten to this thing. It's like, a, it's almost like a glorified infomercial now where it's sure. like, give me your money, it's sign up to my exactly group. I'll send you some, <laughs> just an online. Infomercial. Yeah. I'll send you some motivation and some ideas and how to get rich and how to build your own funnels. And it's like, okay, like Tom Vu was doing that for real estate like 20 years ago. Yeah. Like it's the same, it feels like the same thing. Right. Okay, so this one has been a long time coming and I'm excited to announce the launch of my new company, World Class Media. I've been doing podcast coaching and consulting for individuals and businesses for the last couple of years and over the last few months, I just haven't been able to keep up with the requests. So in order to serve more people, I've decided to stop taking on coaching clients and start an agency that creates a done-for-you podcasting solution as well as monthly production and repurposing services. So if you are a business owner, coach, consultant, entrepreneur, real estate investor, whatever it may be, then a podcast should be the most powerful business development tool in your arsenal. Imagine having something that is constantly engaging your ideal client, even when you're sleeping, or that allows you to connect with the top people in your industry to build your network and establish credibility, or that allows you to help listeners that are currently outside of your sphere of influence, or that helps you get book deals or speak on more stages or create content once that we can repurpose and distribute across all the platforms for you. That is the power of a world-class podcast that's done the right way. So if you're interested in starting a show, but you just don't have the time, the resources, or desire to figure out all the tech stuff, the hosting, the equipment, the platforms, the production, then you just focus on what you do best, which is serving your clients and running your business. And then let my team focus on what we do best, which is creating world-class chart-topping podcasts. Let's at least hop on a call and chat about it because I'm fairly picky with the people that I work with. And I only work with people who I genuinely think are going to be able to absolutely crush it with a new show. So head over to travischapel.com slash make my podcast. That's travischapel.com slash make my podcast. And we'll chat real soon. I like that you brought this up because um, that's one thing that, that I try to tell people, but not a lot of people are comfortable with accepting that it's a fact, which is what you're talking about in terms of knowing who your peers are, like yeah. reaching up to a level above you, things like that. Um, but a lot of people just don't want to admit that there's levels. And for some reason, there's it's clear, right? There's very clear levels that uh, yes. success that people are operating on. So how do you, like if somebody's out there listening right now and they're like, okay, so I, I've, we've talked about a couple of things that I shouldn't do. What should I do if I, if I want to try to get up that, that one step higher? It, the one step is easy. It's the two steps that's difficult. And what people think is they can move to the to second step and skip a step, hmm. right? And you know, and I have it in my world. I, I have a lot of, I have some celebrity friends and yada, yada, right? But there is a different level of celebrity friend that I know that I can't get to. Uh, Mark Cuban's a perfect example. Hmm. Worked with him, known him for years, I would tell you we're friends yeah. because it makes me look cool because Mark Cuban's my friend. <laughs> yeah. Mark Cuban would not tell you we're friends. Yeah. If you're like, hey, Brant Pimitic, he'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah. That's it. Right. I can't reach. I can reach out directly to him, but it better be something right. of value. We're not peers in the sense that I can just call him up and say, what's up? Like, there's none <laughs> of that. Okay. So I know he's two steps from me hmm. because of the way his sort of world has gone. Sure. So I'm very respectful of that. And so that gives me the access to the relationship, but I don't step over that. So when I have something that's general to go to him about, I go through the agent. Hmm. 
when I have something that's specific, I'll send him a text or something. But I understand where I sit with that. Now, yeah. Mark Cuban pre-Shark Tank, that's different. Hmm. Gary Vaynerchuk, that's different. And by the way, for a lot of people, he's getting close. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Because he's starting to be a pop culture celebrity. Sure. So I've already dialed back the messages, how much I talk. Like, I don't treat him like we're buddies because we're not buddies. Yeah. And that's... And that's a different thing. People have a real hard time with that. But on the first level of connection, people that are within your circle, still a little bit up in mm -hmm. success and status and connections. Um, my partner, Oren Claff, wrote a great book called Flip the Script. Mm -hmm. And it talks a lot about what's called a flash roll. We talk about it differently, but he talks about a flash roll, which is, hey, I'm going to show you that I operate on your level. We're going to talk shop for the first 30 seconds here so I can give you a sense of like, I'm at this level with you. Hmm. And that's a really important piece to be able to do. It's it's the classy version and the the functional version of dropping names. Hmm. How do you drop names without, in the literal sense, dropping names? How do you drop names as in, how do you drop knowledge on someone so they know you're someone that actually does something? If you were gonna talk to somebody about a, doing a podcast, you could talk podcast lingo. Yeah. and language and details. And now all of a sudden I know that you're like, you're in this world, right? When I meet somebody, I'm, you know, I'm quick to, to suss out where they, where they are, what they do, what we have in common, what skills, what areas, what do we cross over in? And when I lay that out, it's like, okay, now I know what to think about you. And that's the perception I want. Now you got to go put in the work. So, so how much of that you know, initial 30 seconds is the words that we say, you know, showing expertise versus our body language, the, like the way that we look, the tonality that we use. Unfortunately, and this has been hard for people to grasp, is you can't really have one without the other. Hmm. If you have the body language and the attitude, but without the ability to back it up with what you say, people will know it's phony. Hmm. Then you're working on your quote unquote confidence. Confidence that you build is, that's not confidence, that's a show. People know when a show's on. Hmm. Confidence is the value that you feel you bring to others. So if you, and I use this example on stage, let's say I was going to cater your wedding. Mm -hmm. And for a chef, I had Gordon Ramsay. And I was walking in to pitch you and your bride-to-be. How many words would I need to convince you, right? Four words. I have Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> Think about how I walk into that room. Think about how my shoulders are. Are they slunched over or am I back? Right. Am I smiling or am I kind of dead face, right? Right. right. Because I know the value of what like, I'm about to say. You know you got the goods. That's right. Yeah. So I don't use a lot of words. I probably speak pretty clearly. Yeah. I probably got bright eyes and a happy face. Not my afraid chest to make is eye up. Contact. That's right. Yeah. I'm in that mode. If it was my brother-in-law, ex-convict who just got out of jail, doesn't really cook but needs a job, <laughs> how many words do I need to convince you of that? A couple hours. Right. Yeah, maybe days. Now, how do I walk in that room? Now, there's yeah. two people. One person walks in the room the way they really feel, which is a little slunched over and like their hands are clenched, right? Yeah, right. And you know. And then the show guy. And then there's the show guy yeah. who comes in to try to pitch you his convict ex-brother-in-law with the yeah. same attitude. This is going to be the best thing. And they've got yeah. the big chest out <laughs> and a big smile. Now, do you know that right away? Do you sense that? Does your bride-to-be go like, Ugh, I do not like this guy. Yeah. Right? Just That's the way the real world works. Yeah. And it used to be very, very few people would pick up on that. Yeah. And if we had a time machine, go back to the early 80s, we could pull all that stuff off. But today, people are waiting 
yeah. for you to start with the bullshit. They are just expecting it. They've been bombarded with marketing and promises and under delivers and clickbait and click funnels. And they're just like, yeah, go F yourself. That's their <laughs> go-to model now. Right. Oh, you're going to promise me something? Yeah, I don't believe you. Yeah. That's exactly what happens now. So how do we differentiate ourselves? Well, I think that's what, you know, the book for all the great elements of how to build a pitch, one of the core pieces that I get the most feedback on is it's the simplicity, mm. right? It's how to say less and get more. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. In the early 1900s, Niagara Falls froze, okay? This raging, angry torrent of water that filled the air with this rambling sound. It was just an angry vortex of sound for years and years and years, finally shut off in the middle of the night. 3.30 in the morning, the 5,000 people that live in Niagara are bolted out of their beds. The entire town's awake because for the first time, they heard something. The silence of the falls freezing was the loudest sound they had heard in years because they living there just tuned out that raging water. Mm, yeah. In today's world, marketing, promises, advertising, all that stuff is absolute and total raging torrent of water of information that everybody just tunes out. But if you can simplify your message and get to the point and not color it with neuro-linguistic programming or fancy language or big adjectives, hmm. you will cut through and it will be the loudest sound that people hear anywhere because they will absolutely be drawn to it. And the book really teaches people that process. Yeah, and it seems to be a similar message across multiple I'm a big comedy fan and I watch a lot of different comics and um, something that a lot of those guys talk about you know people like Anthony Jeselnik and, and Tom Segura and some of these guys will talk about the a joke and, and the complexity of a joke but how to say it in a fewer amount of words and right. they talk about how that's the, that's the expert joke writing can yeah. I take a word out of this if I can let's do that and get it down to the simplest form of what this joke really Absolutely. is and that's what works the best yep. so taking that into a business context now um, when you say th it's obviously the, the book's the three minute rule everything's about like can you say this in three minutes yes. how long does an average pitch for you last um, usually it's less than three minutes okay that's what sets the tone. The three minute rule is not just about how to convince your pitch into three minutes. It's basically yeah. everything of value about your business product or service has to be conveyed clearly and concisely in three minutes or less. But that's not the totality of it. Yeah. You're not selling anybody any. Well, first of all, you're not selling anybody anything anymore. They will buy. They right, will not right. let you sell them. But what you want to do is you want to extend that initial decision-making process. Think about this the last time someone came to pitch or present you anything. How long did it take you to form that initial yes or no in your mind? Like Almost a minute? Instantly, yeah. That's right, yeah. 30 seconds, 10 seconds, right. okay? That's because that's how we, we make decisions. What you wanna do with the three-minute rule is you wanna take people through that initial decision-making process. First, they're gonna conceptualize what it is. Then they're gonna contextualize, meaning how does it work for me? And then they actualize is like, do I wanna go further? What does it cost? Should I talk to my wife? Should we have a board meeting? Do I wanna to listen to you more, hmm. okay? Those are the three steps we use to make a decision. And if you use the three minute rule properly, you can extend that initial yes or no, whether they wanna engage or not, for up to three minutes. That's about the maximum the human will go through. 
And if you do it right, you can get almost three minutes, which was great about that. You're extending it. So now I can cram in as much valuable information as I possibly can. Sure. And what the book will show you is how to identify what is your valuable information, what order to put it in so that when you go to meet somebody and go to explain it to them, you're getting a chance to tell them all the things that you love about your product, business or service, yeah. but in a way that they actually will understand, then they might want to engage. Yeah. And, and that comes later. Then the engagement phase can last an hour, can last right. two hours, can last nine meetings, whatever. Right, right. But you got to get them to understand it first before they make a decision. You don't want them judging it without all the valuable information. And it seems to me that the very, very first step would be making sure that you have something that is actually valuable, right? Because I, I, mean, I feel like this is yeah. why, this is why a, you know somebody pitching a, a timeshare or something has to take you know, give you a free trip and talk to you for nine hours in a single right. day to convince you about it. I work it's like, with a very large this hotel very company. Valuable, you know? I'm, I'm consulting with a huge hotel company that's doing this exact issue. Yeah. Timeshares. Yeah. And you know, they're a business that basically has to get you to sign on the dotted line right now. Yeah. You can't go to the internet. Because if you think about it. it at all. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And if you do sign, they literally take the piece of paper that you signed. They take it directly over to customer retention. I mean, seven seconds later. Yeah. And they're already trying to keep you because they know that you're going to regret it and that you're going to try to get out of it. And so the problem is, is that the pool of people who will sign on the dotted line because they're in an emotional state is shrinking yeah, and day. getting older. And so they are struggling to figure out how to do this. And I had to sit down and spend more than a day saying, listen, you've got to actually get me the statements of value here. We got to right. get to the point like timeshares are not a scam. They're not right for everybody, but they're mm. not a scam. Right. So the question is, is that who are they right for? Why would they be right for them? And where's the value? Let's start with that. Yeah. And then we'll go and make the next phase, which is let's go target those people to market to, but let's rephrase the way we pitch this so that people will be like, okay, I see the value. Let me decide if that values for me. Hmm. Right. Yeah. And then you can get them in an emotional state and then they're in a warm climate and maybe they go, you know what? I think the value is for me, but it's straight. And it's like, if you want to look this up on the internet, if you want to talk to your friends, if you want to go home, go ahead. Right. We'll give you, you know, because you just can't fool people anymore. Yeah, like because it's a diff it's the difference between being confident and not confident in yeah. the value that you have to offer. Yeah, and it's not unfortunately you can't always have that. I I I got an offer from a very large company to help do all their investor relations stuff. Now, mm -hmm. big company with a huge checkbook it was really kind of exciting. But once I got in there and started working with them, I realized okay, listen, I'd probably short your stock right now. Like I wouldn't be. <laughs> I wouldn't be buying it, that's for sure. Yeah. And, I, and when you show everything, like, and they all know. So they want you to convince other investors to yeah. buy their stock. Yeah, they want to polish there. it up. Yeah. And I'm just going, oh, this is not what I do. Like, <laughs> I get it. It's just not yeah. really my thing. And so I didn't end up working with them, which was, you know, it's enlightening when you get to the point in your sure. life where you're like, hey, I try to do things that make me happy. Now, I did a long time in an entertainment business where there's a lot that I didn't enjoy. Yeah. And I did that for the money only. So it's interesting now that I'm in this world. It's like, I really want to help people simplify their message, get what they, the value they have across. It's just sometimes they don't have the value there and they're just trying to say it in a way that makes you think there's value. That's not easy to do. Are there any pitches that you, that you had that you'd experienced that you're particularly proud of in, in terms of like you got a, a bad you know vibe or whatever from the person that you were about to meet with, but then after hearing your pitch, they were just kind of loosened up or warmed up. Was there, is there any well, examples that you can think of? I that? mean, the best one is in the book with the San Francisco 49ers. Go yeah. Niners! Um, <laughs> I had worked with the president. He was a really good friend of mine. We had worked on TV shows, and when they built Levi Stadium, you know they were 
looking at, you know, how, we got to get sponsors on. We need a name sponsor. It was developing pitches for that, which was yeah. really cool. But the big one is, which people don't usually think of, is you build a new stadium, almost cost $2 billion. Your team plays 10 times a year. So how do you pay for that right. if there's only people 10 times a year? Season ticket holders. Yeah. But, but <laughs> yeah. that's, again, 10 times. Right, right, right. So no. you got 355 days. You better put some things in there. Right, and right, for right. a stadium like that, you need the big ticket items. You need Taylor Swift's right. concert to come. You need the Rolling Stones. You need whatever it sure. is. Monster truck. You need it in your stadium. Mm. And for them, at that time, the biggest ticket item was WrestleMania. WrestleMania is the biggest sporting event in the world. Mm. And every year, Vince McMahon has a little sort of dog and pony show. Come to Connecticut. Tell me why I should put WrestleMania with your place this year. Mm. And so with the San Francisco 49ers, it was like, okay, we got a new stadium. How do we make that pitch? Yeah. And what was interesting was, is when you look at it, it's like, well, wait a second. You know, Jerry Jones or Tish is going to go in there and they're going to say the same thing every year. Like, mm. why do you need them to show up there? They, they, the mayor's coming. They're going to say the same thing. Flight patterns. We're going to add extra security. We're going to make this. Like, they say the same thing. Mm. All that information is online. Why does he want you there every year? It's because that's what he does. Yeah. And, you know, at the WWE, they have this huge seven-foot statue of Andre the Giant in the lobby. Giant cut out of his hand and you just you can't help but put your hand in there and you're like oh my god i'm so tiny and insignificant <laughs> and it's almost like on cue the doors open yeah and there's a bazillion foot table and at the end is vince mcmahon and stephanie and paul who's triple h and and he has this reputation of when you get into that moment and you're gonna you get your pitch started okay and he just sort of stops you uh, guys, could you just tell me why we should have WrestleMania there? Like, can we just get to the point? Like, that's his yeah. sort of thing. He loves to throw you off. And and listen, if you know, you know, I I love this Vince McMahon, so he's just a certain type of character, right. right? He has a certain way of doing things. And so for me, looking at that pitch, it was, hey, we don't need to tell him how many seats are in the stadium. Mm -hmm. He knows it. We don't need to tell him how it's new. We don't need to tell him what we're doing. We need to find out really what it is. Why are we pitching this? What are we saying? Yeah. What is the reason? Like, what's the ultimate decision maker? Yeah, like, what is it? What are we saying? And so eventually we came up with the pitch, the idea that, listen, the Silicon Valley is the center of the digital world. It's the heart of social media. Every major company is based there. Every major company is, has a box and is part of, this, of the Levi Stadium. Levi Stadium is now the iconic building of the Silicon Valley. This is a chance for the WWE to be associated with every major tech company in the world. The whole world is moving digital. That's where that, That's where you need to be. And that was the core of what we were actually pitching to him. Yeah. Yes, it has 76,000 seats and all that other crap. But for the most part, that was the hook, right? And then for us, we, you know, he had, they had this really cool program that they had developed with this seat ordering where you could order merchandise and food and stuff right from your seat. Yeah. You didn't have to go to the concourse and line up. So as the match is going on, if the rock's in there, you could order a rock t shirt right there and have it delivered, which means the WWE could make more money on merchandise. Sure. So that came later because that's what I call the edge of the story is once the, he's already hooked, what is it? We're going to, you know, digital and then this. So, but that was one of those moments in my career where I was like, oh, wait a second. Like, I think I have a career outside of television. I think oh, really? this okay. is what I could do yeah. and not be in television anymore because they're a big company. And it happened to me a few times where I'd go, you know, I'd go meet with a company that does type one diabetic anti-rejection drug therapy. Yeah. And the guy's got a wing of the Miami hospital named after him and they're hiring me to come and help them. And I'm like, Oh God, I'm a mediocre television producer. What am I doing here? <laughs> but 
you realize pretty quickly that nobody really has all their shit together. Right. People have some of their shit together. Some people have a lot, <laughs> but no one has it all. Yeah. And the skills you develop in other areas of life can be really valuable to a lot of people. People just don't notice that. And I realize those skills that I have are very valuable to people. Yeah. Do you find that um, when you go outside of the industry that you're used to, that people are more, I don't know, maybe impressed by the expertise because it's not something that's totally worked on in that per, like particular yeah. sphere? It's a listen, the, the fairness is, is Hollywood is cool. Like yeah. in, in most of America, like Hollywood's cool to be able to do what I did in television. It just sounds cool yeah. and it looks cool and it's kind of sexy. Now it's a huge it's, credibility booster. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's none of those things. <laughs> it's a pain in the ass and it's a grind and it's not glamorous and it's hard and it's competitive but that's the way every business is, right? Yeah. And I remember, ironically, the NFL with um, Prague, the president of the team, we were pitching a show. And when I we were at, we rented this big fancy SUV limo and we were going to network to network to pitch the show at all different networks in one day. So they were up in the front seat, we were in the back seat. And, and I remember saying to my partner, oh my God, could you imagine working for an NFL team? That'd be the greatest thing in the world. Every Sunday is a different team, a different challenge. You're making moves, doing kind of cool stuff. You do the whole season, then you get ready for the next. Like, this would be the greatest job ever, yeah. right? And big NFL fans, we were just like, this is amazing. We go pitch yeah. a few shows, we go to lunch, we're on the way back, and I could hear them talking up a few hours later. And Parag goes somewhere and he goes, oh my God, could you imagine this was your life? rolling around Hollywood, pitching ideas to network executives, having lunch every day, just trying to make things on TV. That'd be the greatest thing ever. And that hit me in the face like a ton of bricks. I was yeah. like, and so I stopped. I said, what, what are you talking about? Like, yeah. you guys work at the end of, isn't that the greatest job? He's like, no, not at all. It's nothing to do with being, you know? And you realize there's no green grass yeah. anywhere. If you yeah. have to do it for a living, it is a grind. But I have been able to leverage the sort of sexy, cool factor of right. Hollywood really well. It helped the book sell. It does open a lot of doors. And from a relationship building standpoint, it does change the game pretty quickly. Yeah. So I, again, I have a good perception, but I do the work. And you can't use perception if you're not willing to do the work to, to back sure. it up. And sure. so I'm all for people making their lives on Instagram look amazing and building the perception. But then you got to go, okay, now that I've got that, how do I make a business out deliver. of this? How do I deliver yeah. something? Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's a big part of it. Yeah. With all this Kobe Bryant stuff that was happening recently, I was reading a post uh, from Jason Witten. I'm a, I'm a Cowboys fan. So yeah. um, Jason Witten's one of my favorite players of all time. And he was talking about the conversation that he had with Kobe where that's literally everything that they talked about was, um, the way that Jason Witten sells his kids and the way that him and Kobe were talking about it was basically like, you can't cheat the muse. It's right. Like you can have all the, the, the glam and you can get the, the press and you can, you know, have the influence and all the people liking your stuff or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, at you can't some cheat the point work. you got to deliver. Yeah, you have to have something right. of, of substance or else yeah. people that do have something of substance are going to sniff you out immediately. Yeah. And, and you'll you just off. run out of people to impress. Sure. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you've impressed all these people. Now what? Yeah. You know, and, and listen, Instagram is, and social media is strange. I, you know, I worked with Kobe again. We're not buddies. We weren't yeah. buddies, right? but I don't post a tribute on my Instagram page. I didn't know him well enough for that, yeah. but you scroll through Instagram and every single person out there is putting a Kobe tribute Selfie. page up. And if you think that's because they're just sad and they 
want that or is it because they know that people will respond to that post mm. and they know that they'll they'll get a reaction like that's kind of the society we're in right now it's a little bit weird yeah kind of creepy but that's sort of where we're at and like people are so focused on perception and they're not focused on the work mm. and it's like if i gave you if i opened all the doors would you be ready to actually walk through them and do something because all you're doing with the perception is setting up to open the door right and if you never walk through it you never deliver what was the point in getting a like from someone in albuquerque yeah, right. you've never met why did you do that right it makes no sense so big shift here in conversation uh, i know we're, we're kind of running out of time but I, I really want to talk to you about this um so i just became a parent about nine months ago yeah um, congrats thank you um his name is cameron and um I, I was listening to a couple of of your of your podcast episodes just trying to prepare for this one and it, it was the one that you brought your son on to talk oh, yeah. before uh, uh, Rob Lowe. Yeah, that's right. That's cool. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I found I found his answers to be just like when, when I when I heard his age, I, I, I had to go back and be like, how old was this kid again? Because right. his answers were just my, like really, really good yeah. and super thoughtful. And it also blew my mind that it, at the end of it, you made sure to say like, look, we did not have a conversation prior to this. This is all him. Like we we didn't script this and nothing, yeah. right? Because I, I, I do have some parent friends who, you know, their kids would come on stage or they'll get on their podcast, but it's all scripted. They want yeah. them to sound awesome or whatever. Um, so I really respected that you just had like, let them talk. Yeah. But also his answers were amazing. So couple of questions selfishly sorry guys on my end uh as a father yeah what what do you what do you do um in order to to instill that that desire because he obviously has a desire to go learn things himself without you having to like push him to be like go do this go yeah do that, go do that um oh i'm sorry to burst your bubble but you can't <laughs> okay you know i got three kids they're all different i'm a crazy intense entrepreneur i've got one kid that wants to be a philosophy professor hmm. it's it, it doesn't work that way you, for whatever reason you can't transfer your desires to your kids and when you do i think when you try really hard you can get them to fake it for a little while but then they rebel as we've all seen hmm. for me i was a very high intensity dad i felt like i could feel like i was winning if i did great dad stuff hmm. and i'll give you a perfect example when this started and actually sort of set the tone for the rest of my life this one incident is I had all three kids. They were under six at the time. My wife wasn't feeling great. We were supposed to go to the beach. She's like, I'm not going to the beach. So let's find something else. And I was like, oh, but the kids want to go to the beach. So I decided to take all three of them to the beach by myself. Not an easy thing as a dad and kids that young. I had like, yeah, two, four, and six, I think. Mm. Maybe even younger. Oof. So as I'm driving there, I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be torture. <laughs> and then I just remember thinking to myself, you know what? What if Jeff Probst had showed up at the parking lot and said, okay, you're on Kid Survivor, and your job for the next three hours is to take these kids to the water, get them, have fun, feed them, bring them back, clean them up, and have a great time. And if you do that, you win the prize. Could I rally if it was a contest? Yeah, yeah. If there was a big prize on the line? And, and, and I was like, I totally could do that. So for the next three and a half hours, I was competing as if there was a million dollars on the line. Yeah chasing these kids around, get them in the water, changing, having food, making jokes, having fun, yeah. like doing fun stuff, like just having the time of my life. And I don't remember if I was having fun doing this stuff, but I know I was like feeling kind of accomplished. You know, like if you're doing sure. a Tough Mudder run, right. you'd be like, yeah, I just got a great <laughs> time. I'm crushing right. this, right? One is, again, a caveman, yeah. that, that I could do that. So I'm loading these kids back up in the car and these 
three, these two women come over and they're like, I'm sorry, we, we don't mean to interrupt, but we've been watching you all day. And we just have to say, you were like the greatest dad we've ever seen. That was amazing watching you. I, we just couldn't resist. And I was just like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I started developing that habit yeah. of, hey, I go to work, hey, I come home. Like if I'm going to go dad mode, it's like out comes the Full cape. out, yeah. And I treat Phil it. Dunphy dad yeah, mode. Yeah, and I yeah. feel like, okay, we're going to crush it. Right. So that was good. But there's a trade-off for that. Okay, my dad did not make up, wake up every day trying to figure out how to make me happy. Okay, my dad couldn't care less what I was going through on a day to day basis if it was just normal teenage stuff, right? Like, his job was to educate me, prepare me, all those things for life. I'm in the mode of let's make this kid's life as easy as possible. Now, there's some great things to that. If you met my oldest son, you'd be like, he is the nicest, kindest, most generous, amazing kid ever not likely he'll be the next Steve Jobs. Hmm. Not likely he's going to be Elon Musk because he just hasn't been born with that fear of failure, hmm. of tough love, of figure it out for yourself or else. He will not be like, if I don't get a job, I can't eat. Yeah, Like there's a gift to poverty. There's a gift to hard times that parents today will not be able to give their kids. Now, I don't know what that's going to manifest itself, but hmm. your best chance is just get lucky. I don't, do, they don't, do the they best don't you the can and get the lucky. Shoulder type yeah, of a, yeah, yeah, and and some people need that. Mm. You know, that's what propelled me in a lot of ways. It's probably what propelled you. But yeah. we're I've lost that with mm. my kids, and you'll probably lose that with yours because that's, that's the way our society is now. That's interesting. Yeah. So I mean, good luck. <laughs> yeah, appreciate that, man. Yeah, um, the contest thing. That I mean, that that hits home for me for yeah. sure. Yeah, and I, that's definitely something to. Well, I, and, I train. You look at the prize too. It's obviously much better than a million dollars. Yes. But I train people to do that in my high intensity and high performance series. And I've worked with professional athletes and I coach teams is I train people how to do that in every situation in their life, like to, to get your body used to winning situations. Hmm. And I, this great exercise, if your audience is going to go out to lunch today or whatnot, if the waitress had a contest, who was the best customer today? What would be, who enjoyed their lunch the most? Yeah. And there was a contest and she was giving away a $10,000 prize. What would you do to to win or yeah. get in the running. Right. How would you act? How would you speak? What would you look like? How would you sit in your chair? How would you talk to her when we came, when she came there? Okay. Mm. If it was a genuine contest, you act a certain way. Yeah, totally. And your body and brain physiologically doesn't know the difference if it's a real contest or you just think it is. It doesn't know if there's a prize or not, right? And so it isn't about that moment. It's about training your physiological makeup to be in that mode more often. Oh, I'm going to win something. Yeah. I'm going to win a situation. Pshoo, bang. Here I am. Watch me crush it. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to pick up my car at valet. Pshoo, dude, if this guy was given prizes for the best valet customer, pshoo, I would, I'd be in the top three for sure. <laughs> right. You can train yourself yeah, to right. do that. You won't do it all day, every day, but you do it more often when you really want that attitude, when you want to bring something. Now your body's used to it. That's why professional athletes, practice as hard as right. they play right because they need to be in intense mode you can't build the habit of half-assing right. something that's right yeah and if you look at the rest of your life if you're someone who performs well at, at the office or per performs well in a athletic situation the rest of your life is probably half-ass hmm. and if you don't think that rest of your life being half-ass and average affects your time when you want to be non-average like you're crazy it hmm. does not just up on the practice court not just at the office 
everywhere you are normal and average, that's what the rest of your life wants to be. Yeah. It's like average is chasing you down. It's a force. It's, it's like a gravity. force. Yeah. And you got to practice it and you can do it in any way. If you go to, if you go to the movies, you're like, if there was a prize for who enjoyed this movie the most, what would I do differently? How would I sit in my chair? How would I act? And like just those little exercises hmm. make a difference. And I'll do it sometimes just driving. Okay. The next three miles, if the Lord himself came down and awarded a prize, <laughs> eternal life, to whoever drove these next mi three miles the best yeah. and enjoyed it the most, what would I have to do? And and I guarantee people are listening to that. And I, it's like, close your eyes, think how you'd drive. Yeah. Think how you'd be. It, at home, when you're thinking about it, your chest fills up. Yeah, and like I do just, this on stage and I will have yeah. a thousand a people. Of, yeah. I could see them rising in their seats. <laughs> I could see the smiles because I've told them we're going to have a who walks the next seven steps the best. We're going to have a contest. Yeah. And I say, okay, but I need you to think about it. I don't care. You can't come up here to do the contest and try to think about what you're going to do. And there's too many people you got to know. So let's just take 15 seconds and picture how you're going to walk these seven steps, yeah. seven steps to a thousand dollars. And of course, everybody's picturing themselves with their stroll or whatever. And they're all smiling yeah. and they're laughing. It's like, okay, we're not doing the contest, but you just, see <laughs> yeah. I'm not giving you a thousand dollars. Your boss is too cheap. That's usually my joke, but yeah. <laughs> that's perfect. So uh, what, you know, or who, you know, Brant, which one is more important and why? I mean, who you know can change. What you know, you can never get away from. You could know everybody. And at some point, you can know all the right people. And that's great. And you can keep using those people to know more people and more connections. But at some point, you're going to have to go through the door and make something happen. Yeah. And so it's more important what you know. Hmm. Because you can get to who you know in today's world. Everybody's one degree of separation. Yeah. And I just had a consultation with somebody who's writing a script and they're a writer and they want to know how to get in here and get in there and do this. And I was just like, you know what? Just write. Hmm. Cause if you write something great, you write a great episode, a pilot, a script, like it will find its way. Nobody cares about anything else, but the work now, hmm. right? Who, you know, is fantastic. If you got something to back it up. Yeah. And usually in today's world, if you got something to back it up, you'll find the right people. Yeah. Love that, man. Well, look, I could keep talking about several, several things, <laughs> but uh, got to wrap it up. Got to be respectful of your time, audience time, my time. Um, is there anything else that you would like to say? Anything, any sign off that you want to give like one big piece of advice? Uh, maybe could be around relationship building. Maybe it could be around pitching anything that you, have I mean, the, the biggest thing is simplicity. Simplicity is the new sexy clarity is compelling. If you want to be compelling to people, be clear and the value you bring is your information. Um, you know, I, Listen, the book is doing really well. It's a bestseller. I'm very happy with that. If you haven't got it, you should go get it. Three minute rule.com. And it'll change your perspective on how you communicate anything to anybody. And that's just it right now. It's a valuable proposition because there's just so much skepticism in the world. It's no fun not being able to convey your message to others. Perfect. So three minute rule.com, everybody, you know that I tell you as soon as we recommend a book, go get it. Even if you're reading yeah, a book right now, it. you got to get it right now or else you're going to forget. Yeah. And then three years later, you'll be like, oh, I forgot. I was supposed to get that book. So go get yeah, it right yeah. now. Don't wait. Um, and, uh, and check it out. Let us know what you think. Brant, thank you so much for coming to the show today, man. I had a fantastic time. Right on, brother. Well, that's it for this episode of World Class. World Class is hosted by me, Travis Chapel, and produced by Eric Skorzynski. It is a world-class media production. At World Class Media, we produce top-rated podcasts for seven to nine-figure entrepreneurs, executives, real estate investors, and content creators. So if you want your own show, 
you have the budget to create one, but you just don't have the time or the team to figure it out, then go to travischapel.com slash make my podcast. That's travischapel, C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L.com slash make my podcast. And let's chat to see if we'd be a good fit to work together. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, peace out and stay world-class.